1: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations with the intention of demystifying, destigmatizing, and desensitizing what really gets talked about behind the closed doors of the therapy room. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Selkin and we're seekers,
3: soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. So join us as we dive into the ways that therapy can be connecting not only to yourself, but also to those around you.
2: Welcome to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. I feel like I'm so excited to share this episode.
3: This was... An unexpected treasure for me on this lovely afternoon. I came in I, to this conversation a little stressed and preoccupied, and I now feel superbly grounded in my humanness. Mm. Um, and I am grateful to our guest for doing that. He has a way.
2: Mm. He really does. You know, I knew you were going to love him. And I think that he he really just taps into um, something that is so sacred and has been sacred to both of us in our journey, um, the ways that we speak to being alive um, through a depth psychological lens, through uh, you know, valuing authenticity and honoring each and every part of the journey for what it has to teach us, and um, you know, he's just someone who I found his writing not that long ago and am um, moved by what he writes so deeply every single day. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, just connecting to this this deeper soul, right, and and the collective soul, and when you find people like this, I think who can touch that place in you Mm. um i think it it's just and we talk a little bit about this in this conversation but it just further it connects you to you it connects you to them it connects you to the larger community to source um, to source and i think that's partly what he's offering the world is i think a deeper connection to to all things
2: Mm. we'll just let the episode speak for itself
3: We were just getting, you know, acquainted with our lovely guest, Rainier. Rainier Wild is a teacher, a guide, a writer who works with men and women around the world to discover their unacknowledged shadow and forge an intimate union with their masculine and feminine in order to awaken their wholeness.
2: Hmm. Thank you
1: so much for being here, Rainier. Oh, it's really my pleasure. I'm excited to be here.
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I gotta say right from the jump, I'm having one of those moments of like a little bit of a fangirl thing. And I'll just, I I name that quite often when I do, um, but your work who my, my friend Nico Barraza turned me on to through his podcast, um, has just become for me, Rainier, like, oh gosh, like, it feels like a spiritual experience. Like I get my cup of coffee, I sit down to read what you've wrote for the day, and you know I'm always so fascinated by people who are so clearly channeling something from source through the work that they do, and that just comes through so strongly in your writing. It's like the universe speaking to me so often. Oh,
1: that's easily the most powerful intro I've ever gotten. So thank you very much for that.
2: Today's <laughs> good at that. Thank you very much for the way that you show up in this life. Um, mm-hmm. And I would love to hear if this has been what you have always known you were supposed to do. Yeah. Like, I want to
3: know at what point do you have this, like, or do you even have, have you even had this knowing of like, oh, I'm, this is what I'm here for. Mm. This is what I'm channeling. We love to kind of get the backstory from people, you know?
1: How interesting. What a great question. Thanks for, thanks for teeing me up on that one. Um, (laughs) you know, the easy answer is no, you just show up to life Mm -hmm. as it's occurring and it takes you where it wishes. Um, I think that if you look back with any degree of retroflexion, you can say with confidence, all of life has prepared me for this moment. Mm -hmm. Right. So (laughs) I've had, I think at last counting 42 different jobs and I'm 41 years old. So that's an interesting track record. Mm -hmm. Um, And now when I'm talking about jobs, I actually mean over the like over the table jobs Mm -hmm. like these were jobs that I literally cycled through Mm -hmm. from blockbuster video to college professor to to, um, you know, warehouse employee to landscaper, Mm -hmm. all these different things that I have actually done that have. Um, strangely all found their way into what's coming forward for me today, and I think that's true. This is one of the things I say over and over and over, that you are adequate to the life that you are living, and what I mean by that is we have systematically created the way we occur in our lives, which is wonderful news, if we have created this life, it means that we are actually adequate to it. We can show up to it in a way that is meaningful and powerful to the degree to which we have chosen it. And so when I look at my own life, I think, well, gosh, no, I never made a single decision where I thought, oh, this is exactly where I'll end up. But when I look back, I go, oh, of course, like, of course, this makes sense. Mm. Um my my parents were very public figures. They were uh, speakers and teachers. My father was a televangelist, and my mother was very very powerful in her own right, and uh, led a large international women's organization. and you know, travel to 67 countries, bringing all manner of interesting comments to, to people. And I got to travel with them quite often. Mm-hmm. I think back, I, I look back and I go, oh, that's interesting. I was always kind of in a degree of public spotlight. Mm-hmm. I was always kind of in a degree where there was some scrutiny. So sometimes I'll have people show up in my life and they'll say, oh, my God, it's just like I know you. Mm-hmm. And that almost means nothing to me. Mm -hmm. Because people have always kind of known me. Mm -hmm. Um, But do they know me? Yeah. You know, and so there's always been this distinction for me. There's people who know me and what they mean is they know of me. Mm
0: -hmm. They know
1: something about me. They know something about my words, but. That, oh, how much I value, how deeply I value it when I meet someone who wants to know like the ordinary things, like what I had for breakfast this morning, or, <laughs> or, you know, if I take my coffee with cream and sugar or black. So
3: I yeah. love that. Yeah. It's an, and it's an interesting world too, that we live in now with social media, because we give access, I think, to deep parts of ourselves in what we share, right. For those of us who are kind of in this line of work in particular. And I think that people connect with you and they connect with those parts of you because they see themselves in those parts. And so then they actually do think that they know you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of people that reach out to me or my partner um, and just in the language they use or the things that they ask or the things that they share about themselves, it's like they really do on some level feel like they know you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it's just an interesting, I don't know, kind of way of looking at this, this strange social media world we live in.
1: I remember there was a moment several years ago where I was sitting with a mentor and they said something that really inspired me at the time. They said, the only thing you have is your story.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's so true. I mean, for one thing, our story about reality is not reality, Truth. but on the other <laughs> hand, all I have is my story, my set of stories, my set of understandings of myself. So if that's, you know, theories are a dime a dozen, concepts are are ever fading, ever shifting. But what I have is this essential part of who I am, this narration that I'm constantly turning over in the compost of my life. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm, if I'm always overturning it and digging through it and sifting through it, then what I want to offer up is simply that, is simply the story as I understand it. And what I've, what I've discovered since then is that if I can share my story and, and if I can do that with any degree of clarity, over and over and over then it frees other people to Mm -hmm. to do that themselves to begin to share their stories and there's something like freedom that occurs when i share my story Mm -hmm. when you share your story i mean this is what therapists know yeah like we don't say it that often but what we what we actually know is that that sharing stories there's something liberating about sharing stories well listen um i you know because clinically trained therapy is my tribe. Uh, I, I love to, to, to dish on my tribe. Mm-hmm. And, and part of what I mean when I say that is, you know, I think like we look back on the practice of leeches, mm-hmm. like 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and we're like, now, it's a little weird. And we would never recommend it today, but they kind of were on about something.
3: Yeah, you still know, they still use that, were like,
1: by the way. <laughs> right, yeah, like, well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's not as wise, widespread. And what they really did know was that there's something about the blood. Yeah. They're like, you know, there's something in the blood here. Well, I, I think in 150 years, we will look back on how we practice therapy today. And we're like, you know, we were really on to something. It, <laughs> it, it was pretty small and largely inconclusive, mm. but boy, there was really something about sharing your stories in a place of belonging totally. that, that we understood was vital to the human experience. And so I, I, I think and believe that so deeply that as we begin to share those places with clarity and authenticity, there's freedom.
3: You know, Rainer, too. I want to bring up, because I, I talk a lot about how our inner narratives um, can be both, our inner stories can be both freeing and also a bit like chains, right? And so when I'm hearing you say this, what's coming up for me is this idea that by you sharing your story, not only is that freeing to other people because they see you sharing your story and then they might be you know, inspired to share their, theirs or uh, feel free to share theirs. But also I do believe when you said composting, this is what it made me think about, it's like every time I share my story, every time I go inward and then pull it out and, and kind of present it in front of me, it is a process of composting. And in composting, things break down and then new things are birthed from the broken down composted pieces, right? And so our story is never fixed. It's never concrete. And every time we go in and do more composting, it can evolve and change. And there's freedom in allowing it to evolve and change and not be fixed. Um, And I think that's really important people to understand about our quote unquote stories as well, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. From my perspective, once we understand that all we have are stories is mm. we, we, we enable ourselves to have a degree of play, mm. right? If they're just stories, we're so addicted to the idea that our stories are the facts. Yes. Right. And we live in a cultural context that, that our dominant myth is, uh, well, that's just the way it is. Mm. <laughs> um, that's just another myth. Right, it's akin to the myths that you know, five hundred years ago, my ancestors would have told about about Odin or or Thor. Right, these are these are things that are are simply cultural myths. They're cultural stories. Right, Mm -hmm. they have certain kinds of value. But but the idea of science and fact and narrative, these are all just kind of other sorts of stories. And so I don't approach my story as if it were the facts. Right, and and I think we often do, and that's where we get stuck right? That's where we get really trapped up. We think we're addicted to this idea that our story is the fact. Yes. And once we liberate ourselves from that and realize, well, that's not exactly the case, you know, for instance, um, if I say, I love you to my partner, or if you say, I love you, I fundamentally believe that's actually not what we mean. Hmm. Right. Um, and, and so I would, I would maintain that when most of us say that to the person we think we love or, or really do love, we don't mean I love you. What I actually mean is I live my life consistent with the concept I love you.
3: Hmm.
1: But the experience of it's really rare. I mean, uh, I no longer, it's sort of like, I no longer distinguish between the experience and the concept because most experiences become concepts, which are representations of the thing itself. So when I experience, I love you. -hmm. It affects my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't manifest love. Love manifests us. It summons us, it crashes in, it makes a mess of our world. When love comes unbidden, oh my God, she disrupts Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Um, but is that what's going on with your partner and you when you say it? Probably not.
3: Yeah, probably not.
1: Yeah. So something's going on, but not that. So what we're actually saying is, I have a concept about what love is. And I try and act in such a way, and behave in such a way, maybe even think in such a way that's congruent to that concept. I love you. Now here's where things get really trapped up. Um, I feel different than what I say. Yeah. But but I swear I'm saying the fact. Yeah. Right. So we're addicted to this idea that. My story is somehow the fact or my experience. These are two different domains. Mm -hmm. There's my story. And then there's the actual experience. And people don't know why they're not turned on, why they're not alive anymore. Mm. And it's because they believe their story about reality is reality. Mm. And they don't know why it doesn't match um, their experience. Mm -hmm. So I love you isn't reality anymore. It's something else. (laughs) And we need to learn to sit with what it is um, and call it precisely.
2: I mean, I'm just having so many thoughts about that, (laughs) that I'm attempting to integrate. And, you know, I, I feel like you talk so much about presence in your writing and like being curious, curious about the experience that you're having in the present moment. And you wrote something recently, a little bit about what you're talking about, um, about how our story sort of like we're writing it. And then even as it's like on the paper, it's sort of shifted and evolved into something different. Right. Um, and I think that there's, there's power, even in that understanding that like, this is like an alive orgasm, orgasm. (laughs) Right there. That's an experience (laughs) in the present moment. (laughs) Um, this is the live organism, but that, you know, You were, I guess I'm backing up a little bit when you were talking about people feeling like they know you. I do think that is what is so much about the the myths that feel so healing and the experience of someone writing down what is happening for them or even what they've reflected on from a couple days ago that happened for them is that i do feel like i hear myself in someone else's story i see myself in these mythological stories and Mm -hmm. i feel less alone right like i feel like all of a sudden um the this uh, isolation that we often feel in our right. skin starts to dissipate a little bit. Well and this is our depth
3: is- this is our depth psychology nerdness coming out right. I mean, this is the crux of depth psychology is the importance of the myth and the archetype That's and the, right. right It's this collective experience that reminds us mm. that we are all one, that we are not separated, right that we are not in this
2: alone. Yeah. So even though the story is alive and continuously shifting, there is so much healing and speaking to what it feels like in this moment for the collective. Right.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so true. And I think we need that more than ever. Mm. You know, I, um, I grew up very isolated in a lot of ways, constantly moving, constantly shifting um, always leaving behind the friends I had just made. And I think that as with anyone, we are conditioned to look for the things we did not receive. Hmm. So I think so much of my life has been a quest for community, mm-hmm. a quest for deep relating, authentic relating, something that looks like meaningful connection beyond the words. Mm. I think that today, a lot like me, we're starving for meaningful relationship. Uh, I was a part of a of a what I think, would effectively be an ashram, a community dedicated to work and prayer for largely most of my twenties. And during that time, I felt so connected. This was of course, pre iPhone. um, And so in some ways, you know, there, there were less distractions even 15 years ago than there are today. Mm -hmm. And during that beautiful time, I was surrounded by by people who were working together, they were playing together, they were shopping to do their groceries together. There was a great degree of togetherness and there was something in that that soothed my soul and soothed those souls around us. And I recognized within that, that culturally we're hungry for it. You know, we would meet people, we would go through the airports, the the gentleman I I, um, was a part of this community with, we would go through the airports, sort of arm in arm. We were all in our mid twenties and like arm in arm, like 10 strong walking through the airport and of course people thought it was weird and uh, i probably today would think it was weird as well for one thing you simply don't see men showing a great degree of intimacy with one another yeah. mm-hmm. in general but but also you don't see people doing it yeah. at all and we were so familiar with one another um it, it became a joke right that we were we would just laugh about how bizarre this must look to people <laughs> but i think that bizarreness represents the fact that that we genuinely hunger for it it looks so bizarre because it's like nothing we've ever known and our heart longs for it yeah. one thing i would say within that that's kind of interesting to me Is that community often and relationship often becomes an escape from taking responsibility for our own individual lives. Mm -hmm. So a number of the people who came into that very community simply wanted to slough off onto the community, their own choices, responsibility for having to make decisions, how to stand in tough places alone, because that's the other side. You know, if we don't have enough community in this world, we also don't have enough individuals who are willing to stand in the gap, who are willing to take the heat, who are willing to make a choice and then bear the consequences of that choice. Whenever we look at indigenous cultures or indigenous civilizations, whenever we look at uh, band society, we're always struck with one thing, their ability to be together well and be alone well right Mm -hmm. there's this interesting individualism as well as communal mindset and we really have neither which drives us more and more towards sort of a group think where we look like uh, a giant herd Mm -hmm. all kind of marching off the cliff together Um, not a lot of individual thinking happening not a lot of community happening and I want more of both squarely
2: yeah I've heard you speak to that, saying, you know, yeah. we don't have true community and we don't have true individualism. And I think that that is so much of what I see us collectively hungry for. You know, Gabor Mate talks a lot about how we have equal parts the need for attachment and yeah. authenticity, right? But That's right um attachment will always trump authenticity and I feel like we are coming into a space where collectively we are saying but I gotta reconcile I, I gotta figure out how to be in this space of authenticity and how do I find a space where I can continue to belong and that is like the only thing I'm I'm willing to accept at this point right right well then
3: I would ask too so if you were to have to kind of think or maybe you already done this thinking and kind of articulated it like what would true community so Mm. if if true community in some way has to integrate individualism authenticity and community to use that word again I guess what would that look like does that question make sense
1: Absolutely. This is something I, I gave a lot of my my life to, especially during my 20s. This was something that was very, very important to me. I live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and one of the really phenomenal stories in the United States um, with our indigenous people groups takes place here. And it was the last Um, free tribe in the United States, the Nez Perce. And uh, this particular tribe is often remembered for its uh, elder statesman, Chief Joseph, who, of course, had this wonderful and prolonged speech when he surrendered to the armies that were pursuing them in their flight to Canada from their tribal and ancestral homeland right here in the Northwest, um, where he says, I will make war no more forever. And it's just this beautiful mm-hmm. statement where he lays down his arms, um, which of course is, is just this abject humiliation and they're shipped off to Oklahoma just a, and taken away from you know the lush and verdant beauty of the Northwest to this dust bowl. Mm-hmm. And a, a very, very uh, deep despair when you read some of these stories. But it's interesting looking at their tribal culture um, prior to that, you know, one of the things that the the American colonizers got wrong was they thought there were chiefs in the Nez Perce tribe. And so they would try and uh, they would try and talk to the different chieftains. For instance, Chief Joseph, they thought he was the chief of the Nez Perce. He wasn't. In fact, there were no chiefs. There were mm-hmm. consultants. There were people who held greater sway. There were people who were certainly capable advocates for what they wanted. But in the end, any one of the warriors was more than able to simply walk away. Mm-hmm that they had a great degree of autonomy there was no uh there was no standing army there was no obligation there was no group and this was almost always happening people were simply wandering off the battlefield this is one of uh, you know uh, battle historians look back and they think well my god this tribe could have pressed the advantage any number of times and destroyed you know the the american army why didn't they do it well, they weren't really interested. They had yeah. better things to do. No one was in charge. And so it's very interesting when you look at communities that have existed very, very successfully, like the Nez Perce, with great abundance, one of the things you, you see is there was total autonomy. There was no binding set of this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is how you get in, this is how you leave. Mm -hmm. There was no, it was simply left to the individual. So one of the things that I strongly and fundamentally believe is it actually begins with strong individuals. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I refuse to entrust myself in community with anyone less than an individual.
3: Mm.
1: With anyone less than a solid self. Otherwise, I can't trust you you'll pander to me, you'll play to me, you'll hide, you'll say that I coerced you, you'll say mm. that you co- you'll try to coerce me. There's any number of things yeah. that will happen. We are safe when we take full and total responsibility for ourselves. Okay. And so that's
3: Amen. where it starts.
2: <laughs> It's so funny as you're talking about it. I'm so struck by how much it feels like you're talking about love as well. And I feel like in the ways that you write about love, that is so much what feels really resonant. And I wonder if that feels like a philosophy that you have about, you know, how we go into partnership from that space of autonomy and Authentic really being autonomy. solid in ourself.
1: Yeah. You know, that's, that's um, probably the guiding the guiding uh, set of metaphors and understandings in, in my love relationships. Mm. You know, I, I heard a, um, a story from Don Miguel Ruiz, who, uh, I, and I, I, I don't know what I think about all his work. And, you know, <laughs> he wrote the four agreements. And I know some people are very passionate about that. That's wonderful. But one particular story that I heard always struck me. So he apparently had multiple lovers and, uh, was on, I believe his not deathbed, but a sick bed. And he was not doing so well. Mm -hmm. And one of his lovers was in the room with him and another one enters and becomes very distraught seeing this other partner there. And he looks at this person and he says, I need you to regulate your emotions or leave the room
3: fair enough. <laughs> I love it. He leaves the room. Yeah.
1: Comes back later and they begin to process it and talk mm. about it. And he says, did you not know I had other lovers? Did I not make it clear to you that I had
2: other lovers?
1: Mm. Was this a surprise? Were you hurt that I was going to die? Did you not know I was going to die? I mean, Mm. on down the line of all of these things. So when I heard that story, what so struck me was that he respected her enough to know that she could work through that process on her own. Yeah. Like you can leave the room. You don't actually need my help in coming to these conclusions. Mm. Right. The second thing was he actually expected the person he was in relationship with to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I love about all of that and what I try and emulate in my own life, and bring into my own life is I want to respect the person I'm in connection enough. I want to be a clear channel of what my experience is. And my hope is that they're doing the exact thing. You know, this gestalt prayer, I am I, Mm -hmm. you are you. If by chance we meet wonderful, Mm -hmm. right? If not, it can't be helped. And that really is my own sense. Uh, It doesn't always end well right? I remember when I had a lover who um, she <laughs> she told me, she said, she said, hey, I want you to move from where you are. I want you to completely relocate, move across the country. I want you to, to kind of disavow your family experience who she didn't care for and all these different things. She was very, very clear about what she wanted me to do. And I looked at her and I said, that's great. I am so happy you asked for what you want. No. Mm -hmm. Right? I I mean, it it couldn't have been any clearer. And I absolutely loved her for it. Mm -hmm. I think we need to state what we need very, very clearly, knowing that we may not get it.
3: Yeah, knowing that we may not get it and also working to not personalize it when somebody can't give it to us, because many times it's not about them, right? Like I imagine in that experience, the way that it could have gone for her internally is he didn't choose me. I wasn't enough for him to make all these decisions, you know, to change his life for, for me. And, and really, that's actually not what it was. It sounds like you actually did have a lot of love for her. It's just that you were standing in your authenticity and your individualism. And that just was not stuff that you were willing to give up for anyone.
1: That's it. That's it. And, you know, there have been other moments where I was willing, yeah. you know, I, I can think of, of um, several moments with my partner who uh, she looked at me and she said, well, I mean, I'll give you a very low level moment. I had bought this great Dane. Now I, I, I am somewhat of a dog aficionado. Like I, I, I grew up, my parents bred, both boxers and then boston terriers and so like i i grew up around like dog people like purebred dog people and if you've ever grown up or been around those environments it's odd like (laughs) it it is just genuinely a different world if you've ever seen best in Shows, yeah it's exactly that world they nailed it and um and so i grew up in that way and i always loved great danes Mm -hmm. now I have developed over time, this thing that when a large event happens, it almost becomes a trigger to buy a new dog. (sighs) So the random joke in my family is like, I've had more dogs than cars. I really go through dogs and it's, I'm not proud of it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely not proud of this, but it's just a reality. It's a reality. And people who are close to me know this about me. Well, I had my eye on great Danes for a while Mm -hmm. and I didn't like just any old great Dane. like American great Danes. I didn't care for as much. I liked European great Danes because they had (laughs) these giant heads and these very angular large bodies. And so I searched for a breeder for quite a while. And I found one and I waited, you know, I waited like four or five months for this. Now, the event that had just happened was that we had a four month old son um, when I got my great Dane puppy, by the way, anyone out there who is listening, this is a mistake. This is a bad move. (laughs) This is a bad setup. Meanwhile, we also had a existing three year old Scottish Terrier. Who, if you've ever met a Scottish Terrier, they're just cantankerous. They're mischievous. They're and I, you know, this particular Scottish Terrier, they're ornery. He's still with us. He's now, I think, he's now twelve years old, and he's a very curious individual. Um, I am quite sure that he has outwitted, outlasted, and outplayed all the other dogs. He has. He has managed to shuffle off any other dogs i've gotten so that he alone will last well Mm -hmm. so i get this great dane and instantly the scottish terrier begins to train him very poorly this older dog and so the great dane is is you know having accidents inside the house he's he's you know on everything and we've got you know four kids the youngest is only a few months old and uh, and they don't know what to do with this giant puppy, so they do what children do—they yell at it. They're just <laughs> yelling, and so he's now developing like a fear piddle response, and he's like this 120-pound six-month-old—I'm not even joking—who's just you know doing all of these crazy things, and and we have these large stairs, and so he would be upstairs in the bedroom with us, and and then it would be time to take him down, and he would hold for, for his morning, you know, uh, business. And so I would, I would open the door and he would, he would start to piddle on the way down because he was so afraid he couldn't hold it. Poor dog. So I, I should have known that great Danes, um, they are very fearful actually. Mm-hmm. highly like, sensitive. I love that you guys knew that I didn't, I didn't. all my research did <laughs> yeah. not turn this I'm up. I'm a dog
3: person. Yeah.
1: <laughs> things I should have read. So he is like super sensitive. He thinks he's a Chihuahua. And like it it was, it was going very poorly. At one point, my wife had, uh, you know, three kids at home. They were all little. She had to leave the house. She barricaded the Scottish Terrier and the Great Dane inside the kitchen because they were escaping all the barriers. She had literally put the table and chairs against the doorway frame. When she got home they had broken out of it and they had literally dragged pee and poop all over the house there was poop on the ceiling okay <laughs> oh my so
2: God.
1: how does this even happen so i get an email at work oh God. and the email is very simple it says me that's the that's the subject the body says or the dog
2: real talk. <laughs> Uh, Real talk, was like an email that might would send. I'm like, it yep. was so great. I, I now, love that she sent an email because I would have been in your face <laughs> <near the talk. laughs> at work It needed to be communicated right then. <laughs> so, I,
1: I gotta tell you, I did two things. I, I got off work, I went and I bought a very large ruby ring hmm. for her, Smart um, man. <laughs> and then I came home and looked at her and said, Easy choice,
2: yeah,
1: Aww. right now. Um, there are times in your life where you realize there's a crossroads. That was one of them. Um, But I think that's kind of a funny story to illustrate a lot of couples get hung up on small things, Mm. right? Like we could have gone endlessly around that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I try and do is keep the main thing, the main thing. I'm not going to fight for something that isn't the main thing.
2: Mm. Oh, God. Yeah.
3: (laughs) <laughs> a very succinct way to put it. Like we should not be fighting for the thing. That is not the main thing. What is the main thing people find out what that is and then realize what you're
2: actually fighting for. That's it. I love that. I think we overcomplicate so yeah. much, you know um, Absolutely. what matters most to me. Can I make that my North star? I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And at times, I mean, just very candidly, and you guys have heard me share quite a bit about this. I haven't done that. Yeah. You know, there've been other moments where, um, where I made lots of other things, the main thing. Mm-hmm. This is something we don't talk about a lot as a culture. And I, I'm, I'm so shocked. I was, I was actually talking with one of the people I work with recently, and they were telling me about, um, about a new person they were dating. And they were saying, well, I, I don't know if he's thinking this. Mm-hmm. And what if he's thinking that? And ask I said, him. Oh, you, you should just ask him. Ask him. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and then, and then she said, well, do you think that's okay? I said, let me put it to a different way. You guys get together. You spend the next 50 years of your life together. In 50 years, you'll look back and you'll go, wow, every step of the way we were building something, weren't we? Now imagine that the full first three years of the building project, you did it blindfolded right? How ridiculous. Most of us are building our relationships. We're building the construct of our relationships blindfolded. Mm -hmm. We're choosing the furniture in the dark, right? We're going along, not having meaningful conversations about the reality that's happening to us. And like so many of us, I built at least the the largest part of my own relationship, the same exact way, Mm -hmm. right? I think of, of how we didn't talk about sex. She was, by the way, pregnant when we got together. Uh, and, and the situation was very interesting. Uh, I was just leaving a a divorced situation and and, and a marriage and we, we get together. We're friends first, but in that friendship, we don't talk about sex. Like it's so funny that she was actually pregnant. We still never talked about the fact that she had had sex at least once in her life. I had two children she didn't find out about the two times I had had sex. Like we didn't even talk about these things. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about the role of other partners. We didn't talk about our family of origins and those mm-hmm. impacts on us. We didn't talk about any of the things that shape relationships so profoundly. Mm-hmm. So two years, three years later, when you're in the clutch of it, right? When you're actually dealing in the consequences of those stories and you go, wait a minute, you never told me, well, you never asked, asked. right? Right. <laughs> How ridiculous. And so we build our relationships on, on vaults of shadows, Mm -hmm. hollow places and wonder why when the ground trembles, everything falls
2: down.
3: Well, but Rainer, what do you feel about, you know, uh, I mean, for myself, I work with a lot of people because myself included who struggle severely with codependent behaviors. For those of us who don't actually start out with that very solid sense of self to begin with, it's really tough for me to know, for example, like, what am I fighting for? Like, what is this main thing? Because I don't think I actually know sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes me backing into it. Sometimes it takes me needing to figure out what I don't want to fight for in order to figure out what I do want to fight for or what my needs art before I figure out what my needs are, right? And so I think sometimes for a lot of people, maybe this is a cultural thing, right? This goes back to this idea, like you were saying about the individual. So Mm -hmm. many of us have such a weak sense of individuality, such a weak sense of self, that then going into a partnership, it's not that it can't work, but boy, can it be a recipe for disaster because here I am entering into community when I don't actually even know who the hell I am as an individual.
1: Yeah, boy, um, as one of my favorite teachers, Anthony DeMello said, we're born asleep, we go to school in our sleep we marry in our sleep. Mm. We have children in our sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, This is my story too, by the way, you know, I didn't walk into my, my primary relationship today uh, as a solid self, quite the opposite. I I remember this beautiful moment where I, I called her, we were dating, just dating. And I said, Hey, I'm getting my hair cut. What do you think I should get it cut as? And she said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, what do you mean you don't care? Right? Like, what a what a lovely codependent thing. Mm. I, I just wanted to please her. Mm. Right? And her words to me, you need to get your hair cut exactly as you would feel good getting your hair cut. Right? Right. Be a self. Make what choices. I, I know. know. <laughs> Help, and so you have to guess. Yeah. You have to play yep. that game of trial and trial and
3: error, and error. Mm-hmm.
1: right? And that does, unfortunately, mean quite a bit of destruction. Yes, I don't think there's any way of getting around that. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or a human thing. I mean, we are a species that lives with amnesia, largely of ourself. We don't remember or don't know our actual self, mm-hmm. and so we have to remember it. And most of life is a process of coming to that memory. I'll tell you, I went through some of the darkest times. Um, imaginable at least to me before I even begin to have an inkling of who I was mm-hmm. I remember sitting in the driveway of of our house and just sitting there and the the uh, intensity of the moment I was in can't be overstated and I was sobbing I've only really sobbed two times in my life you know that large uncontrollable animal sob that cry. probably hasn't, right. Yeah. The ugly <laughs> cry that, that hasn't been around since you were six years old, but suddenly comes out when you're 36 and, and you're there. And I was there, I was in it. And I remember kind of blubbering out, like it won't stop. It won't mm-hmm. stop. I was saying that the, the, the relentless pummeling of life and my partner was there. She was observing me within it. She was kind of just holding that space so beautifully. And suddenly a voice, a very still small voice occurred to me in that moment and said, you're right.
3: Hmm.
1: It won't stop. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment I realized something. I realized I'd better fall in love with life as it is today
3: mm-hmm.
1: or check out because life isn't going to stop this is life. Life is trial and error. It's up and down. It's, it's tragedy. It's triumph. It's all of those things, right? We, we build our lives in such a way to avoid the absolute heartache of living, but it's not going to work out for us. We create safe spaces, hoping we'll never feel alone. Guess what? We're born alone. We die alone. It's never going to work out right? We do all of these things. We get the right jobs. We marry the right person. We have the right number of 2.5 children. We do all of the things to get to the place where we'll feel secure. We're not secure, yes. right? Every time I drive down the road and I see a car wreck, like a really bad car wreck, where it's just totaled, I, I tear up. I start to yeah. cry because I recognize that somebody left the doorway that morning. Somebody waved to their partner, waved to their children, said, see you tonight for supper. Mm -hmm. And they can't fulfill that promise. Like the unexpected quality of life, right? It's never going to work out. That's life. You fall in love with it. You fall in love with that. That's the beauty of it.
2: I love that so much. And I do think that that is how we fall in love with living when we and it is, it's like that cyclical practice of forever reminding ourselves, because we will forget, we will want to attach, we will feel afraid and want to make ourselves safe. But the more that we can drop into that space of surrender that um, we're never safe from from harm, we're never not vulnerable to being hurt. That is, you know, the jig we signed up for, right? Like that's yeah. that's the deal. Um, then Then we are able to be present in our lives and just really celebrate the moments of, um, of moments, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say beyond that, I guess. Mm.
1: And that, that celebration, I think it's not that you, um, it's not that you have to like it. Right. Right. Like I've had some really, really crummy things happen since Mm. that wonderful moment. (laughs) I can't say that I love them. Right. I can't say, but you know, one thing that I, one practice that I have, sometimes people ask me, they say, what are your practices? First of all, my instant response is I stopped practicing life.
3: Hmm. Yeah.
1: So I, I think that's one thing I believe in practices. I believe in it for the same reason that Dojon said um, that, you know, enlightenment is a happy accident, but practice mm-hmm. makes us accident prone. I love that. I think that we need to develop practices in our life that make us accident prone, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also believe there are moments and perhaps there is a moment where you stop practicing life. Yes, You stop living a practice life. But if I had to admit to a few practices, I might say that one of them is laughter.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: This is one that my kids have taught me. We play a game in the car Now, four children ranging from 16 to eight, which by the way, any parent who has more than two children, so four children or three children should never do what I just did, um, Because I said two of the children's ages, but not the other two. So I have a 16 year old, a 14 year old, a 10 year old, and an eight year old. So any parent who has children in this range, those
3: two middle children are
1: like, screw you, dad. You're not thinking about me. (laughs) We never get mentioned. I don't count. Uh, I'm in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) But when you have children this age, you have to do some things to actually, you know, like keep the momentum going in Mm -hmm. life. And one of them is the laughing game. Mm-hmm. So here's how it works. Everybody is just lower than the floor. You've been on a vacation. The vacation has gone, frankly, too long. <laughs> um, whatever it is, you know, you're just, you're you're beside yourself. You don't like your own skin, let alone your brother or sisters. So then your dad says, let's play the laughing game. Mm-hmm. And they go, no, not the laughing game. Not the laughing game, dad. <laughs> and And then dad does it anyway. And he starts to laugh like a wheezy, maniacal laugh. And he doesn't stop for a solid minute. Like he's going. And you recognize that he will go until nightfall if you don't join in and so the youngest one (laughs) kind of goes (laughs) and starts doing it too which inevitably becomes funny to the person sitting next to them who then now joins in well now all four are doing these rather ho-hum laughs their very best attempt to pacify father, but then it actually strikes one of their funny bones and it becomes a genuine laugh. Mm. And after the next 10 minutes go by, you realize you're in absolute hysterics about nothing at all. This is the game I play with my children, but sometimes I play this game just by myself. Mm. Like the other, the other day I've been involved in a, in a house refinance, um, that has just gone on for three months. Yeah. It's just been awful <laughs> for too long. Which I told someone this, and they were like, "Oh my god, I'm so disappointed that you're a real person." I'm like, <laughs> oh, "Like you didn't think I owned a home? That's so strange." <laughs> so, so I've been involved in this very prolonged home refinance. We're getting to close. It's Thursday before the close of Friday. Honestly, it has just taken everything in me to get through. And mm-hmm. then I get a call from my mortgage lender saying oh no, we need to do, you know, it's like another month out and I need you to make the mortgage payment from this month. And I'm like, oh my God. And it's late and all these things. And I realized my face is just, you know, like boom, pure downward turned. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I decided to do? Laugh. Yeah. So I started, uh, ha huh, huh. You know, just like that stupid (laughs) laugh that my eight-year-old can give me. And by within about three minutes, I was genuinely laughing. Now, was I bypassing? Nope. Still had to deal with the problem. Mm -hmm. Still actually had to get through it. Still had to problem solve. But what was I doing? I was reminding myself that it's a game. It's a wheel. It's a ride. That's life. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, and you can be in the process of loving. And in that process of loving, not particularly like... (laughs) Right. Like, you know, I mean, with a partner or with a child, like there are times that I'm like, I don't like you right now. I, I act, I love you. Right. Like, and this is what we were talking about earlier with you were saying the idea of loving or love. I think that it is a moment to moment thing. It's like, I know that I am actively loving and yet right now I'm not actively liking and they can be separate. They don't have to always coexist, but this is the laughing. It's coming back to like, I can still be in love with my life and realize that moment to moment, there are going to be ups and downs. It doesn't take away the love of my life.
1: That's, that's absolutely it. And it doesn't have to. And and again, this kind of gets to the, the, the point we made earlier distinctions. My story about reality is not reality. Right. Right. And, and similarly, Mm -hmm. you know, like I can still love life, and not like every moment of it. I can remind myself, these are distinctions. You know, I, I think like distinctions are so important in daily living. If we can just keep clear on on some some of these dialectics in life, like mm-hmm. this and that are not the same, right? And yet it's always kind of like one to the other. We're just swinging. We're just pendulum swinging. Mm-hmm. And both are present. Both are true. I think and is a sacred word, yes. right? You know, like... This is hard, and I'll get through it.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I am in grief, and I can still feel joy.
2: Yeah. I feel curious. Were you about to? <laughs> 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 um, I feel curious to ask you a little bit about this moment that we're living through, because you know, Vanessa and I talk a lot about initiatory processes from a depth psychology perspective, and I do feel like we are collectively in a process of initiation, and you know, deep discomfort in the becoming something hopefully bigger than we have been but I'm curious what you've been thinking about this moment in history.
1: Mm. Um, Thanks for asking me that. I don't really share a lot about this, mm. not publicly. Um, the people I'm in private conversation with usually know my mind on this. Mm. Um, I think we are at one of those fulcrum moments where the future genuinely has yet to be written. Mm.
2: Um,
1: But I think that what I see currently is the crystallization of something that's been around for quite a while. Uh, Story of a project that we chose rather hastily, not knowing the consequences uh, that had short-term gratification but we didn't really count the long-term costs. Of course, I'm talking about the civilizational project Mm -hmm. of 8,000 years ago, when we decided to tell a story of control, a story of meticulous uh, safetyism, Mm -hmm. uh, and fragilization of the human spirit, where we decided to trade things like our very wildness, our own sense of uh, deep species autonomy and connection, with the soil for things like safety, security, and enjoyment, where we began to inhabit cities that vastly decreased our life expectancy, um, and yet did so because quite frankly, there was just better dining options at times. Um, We have produced tremendous technology like the large screen TV, um, but most of our lives seem to bear A great depletion. We are about as far removed from our ancestral health as dachshunds are from gray wolves. And we wonder why we feel heavy. Mm -hmm. The diseases of civilization such as depression, anxiety are rampant. What was the statistic that I just saw from the APA? Something like 61% of Americans are reporting depression currently. This is, this is stunning, mm. this is stunning. This isn't a pandemic story, this is a civilization story. Mm-hmm. Yes. 8,000 years of it coming to an immense moment. This story is coming to an immense moment in which the forces that have always been present of control and chaos are in a climactic battle with one another. Both sides are getting louder and louder and most of us are being taken hostage in the middle. Like We don't find ourselves particularly identified with either side. Mm-hmm. We're simply taken hostage by the people who hold our mortgages and our credit card companies and, and the corporations that rule the world. I think we each have choices. I think when I look at certain responses to civilizations and those projects across the years, one of the ones that comes to my mind is the Incan ruins in South America. You know, we know that that civilization collapsed, that society collapsed, but we don't exactly know why. Mm-hmm. We just know that at one point in time, the people wandered away from the cities. I like to think that they wandered away because they realized the cost was too high. I like to think that they looked at one another and said, the risks outweigh the, outweigh the rewards. Mm-hmm. I think we're in one of those moments where we're beginning to look at one another and saying, is this worth it? Is that large screen TV worth it? Is this little teleportation device called a phone? Is that worth it? Is this thing that we're all doing worth it? Mm -hmm. And I think optimistically, there are people who are asking those questions and raising up a flag and they're discovering one another and they're saying, maybe, maybe we can wander away together. Maybe, just maybe, we can begin to envision something and co-create something that hasn't been envisioned for an awfully long time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm. that's my very general way of addressing really, really specific things in the world today.
2: So with that for a while. <laughs> I feel like I need to have a good cry. <laughs> I'm, not be, I'm not gonna lie. I really uh, wanna sit and cry for a minute. Um, yeah. Thank you for that.
1: I think I, I also want to say there's so much collective outrage in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that outrage is necessitated, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bumper sticker from the seventies, if you're not, if you're not mad, you're not <sighs> paying attention comes to mind. On the other hand, I also think outrage is a bit misplaced. Mm-hmm. I think it's grief. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think we're looking at a dying ember of a world, uh, a beautiful world that we have raped and pillaged and now live in the remnant of. I think my children, my oldest at 16, who fundamentally believes that he will have a shorter life than I do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think we're we're listening to voices, not just of our elders, but of, of those younger than us. And we're beginning to hear those saying time is running out Mm -hmm. I think there's a grief here and a powerlessness and a not knowing what to do and so we're we're rather blindly I think destroying one another when really I don't think uh, I don't think that's the target of our outrage I think collectively we need to begin to step into a place of real grief Mm -hmm. to mourn what was and what could have been and what will no longer be begin to sit with that. From that place, from that place of joining one another in that grief as individuals, I think that's where the community begins to emerge, right? Communities of grief, communities of imagination, communities of resistance, communities of refuge, communities of possibility. That's my hope. Hmm. That's the moment we're in. I'm coming out with a book called As You Are. I'm so excited Hmm. about it. August 31st, you'll be able to get it on Amazon. And it's a collection of 31 meditations on self and other. It's a mm. beautiful, visually rich uh, book. I, I, I love combining images and story. That's one of the things that always speaks to me. I want a, bit, a, a, a rich landscape of textures. That's one of the things you'll find there, really absorbing you into a, a different way of thinking and mm. a different way of being, hopefully. I'm mm. um, so excited about that but I'll tell you what I'm most excited about. I'm most excited about standing in a room with other people holding that book. Mm-hmm. And that's just like their um, their door card to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real event is actually just standing in a room, seeing each other's faces and beginning to be community together. Mm-hmm.
2: We have some questions that we ask all of our guests. Lightning we'll round. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the first question is, who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, influences, whether people you've known or not throughout your journey? Mm.
1: Uh, tragedy to give it a name has mm-hmm. been my greatest teacher mm-hmm. um beyond that i i love the the teacher anthony de mello mm-hmm. krishnamurti mm-hmm. uh gi Gurdjieff, an armenian mystic who is responsible for the thing that i think he would abhor today which is the enneagram but nonetheless <laughs> could be traced as its <laughs> as its grandfather um and uh, yeah i I think I'd probably stop there with influences.
3: Nice. Okay. So what is it for you that you find yourself doing when you are in a state of flow? So what is that thing that you could do where you blink your eyes and six to eight hours have just gone by? (laughs)
1: Oh, I'm, I'm relaxing in, in my bed or in a hammock in my backyard. Uh, I'm, flo- I'm literally floating down the river. I'm frittering, I'm doing absolutely nothing.
2: Oh, I love frittering.
1: There is so much power in doing nothing. Oh my yeah,
2: God, beautiful. Um, and and what breaks your heart?
1: I feel like my heart gets broken almost every day in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that one of the things I've been conscious of breaking my heart lately um, has been when people don't care to know you, when they just care to consume you.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, This is something I've been sensing lately and feeling. I I think I'm probably going to talk about it. I think as anyone who teaches, as anyone who talks openly, there is sometimes that sense of being consumed.
3: Mm -hmm. I
1: think lately I've been feeling that. I don't want to, I don't want to simply feel like fodder for consumption. I really want to know people and be known. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm.
3: Okay. the last one's a very heavy one. What's your favorite food?
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, so I am a, I'm an East Texas boy and um, my kids will tell you that every year on Christmas, I make a Christmas gumbo. Mm-hmm. And if I, if I had to say what my favorite food is, it's not the food that I eat every day. It's that Christmas gumbo where andouille sausage and chicken and shrimp and sometimes crab legs go in and get served this muddy broth, which is like life, isn't it? Like this muddy texture that is also velvet, goes over rice. And as spicy as all get out, and hurts to the touch. And, and friends who get invited over have to ask for an extra glass of milk because they're unprepared for the heat. <laughs> where my eight-year-old puts extra hot sauce—that <laughs> would be my uh, my favorite food.
2: Mm. Oh, now I'm craving gumbo. Yeah, Ugh. those those southern foods that you you only have when you're in the South, boy. Um, That's it. Will you tell people where they can find you because? I I love everything that you're putting out.
1: You find me at Rainier Wild on Instagram. That's really where I have most of my fun (laughs) and, uh, and occasionally over at my blog workshops and, um, sometimes Mm. one-on-one
2: as well. You know, Rainier, I'm just, I'm really, I feel emotional. I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to tell you, thank you. Why am I crying? Um, because I've just been so moved by your work and your words. And when you speak and when you write, I feel connected to something holy. And I know that I'm not the only one who feels that way. Um, a lot of people do. And you know, since sharing your work, so many people have written me and just been like, oh my gosh, what a treasure. And I feel mm-hmm. that you are such an incredible treasure. And I'm so, um, I'm just really grateful for the way that you share yourself with the world because it's meant a lot to me. So thank you for coming on so I can have that opportunity to tell you thank you.
1: Wow. That means just a lot to hear.
2: (laughs) I'm like, I'm just going (laughs) to give myself
3: Kev. I let Danae do these outros because I'm I'm the avoidant of the dynamic. So I'm always (laughs) like, thank you so much, but I don't know how to access my feelings (laughs) or my words. (laughs) She speaks for both of us.
1: (laughs) You know, wow. if, if I could actually just say something to that, Danae, and I don't know if anything needs to be said after that. I think that is, um that is so beautiful because the truth is like, I'm not trying to be holy <laughs> and, I, and I'm really not trying to actually say or do or think anything very profound. Hmm. Um, the reality is every morning I wake up and I grab this little typewriter, right? And I type with my thumbs in the way that my father used to chicken peck with his fingers on his typewriter. And, and I type uh, the words that are me, Mm -hmm. right? And my goal is that my words wouldn't be separate from my experience. And so that if you've read my words, that it's not like, oh, I really want to get to know him. It's that, that you would actually be able to unveil and see yourself. Mm That, that it would be such a clear and polished mirror that maybe you would see yourself. And like Hemingway said, I just want to write one true sentence. Mm. Um, and so I'm so glad that that's where it's touched down for you um, because it's really just my attempt to be a genuine soul on this planet.
2: Mm. That is so it, deeply felt, well, sir. Yes, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It truly, it meant a lot to us. We appreciate you. It's
3: been an absolute pleasure. I'm really, really Thank glad you, you came on.
1: Well, I must leave as well. Sad <laughs> <Yeah>. for me.
3: <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we will be speaking with you soon. I am sure.
1: Great. Thank you both. Yeah. Bye-bye.